0: Today, on The Bill Kelly Show, on 900 CHML. The election, of course, uh, was the big news earlier this week, and uh, the re-election of uh, Hamilton Mayor Fred Eisenberger. Uh, And uh, as is per usual, of course, we've uh, got some of the the breakdown now as to exactly where the the votes were and what particular areas. And uh, it it paints an interesting picture when you look at just uh, how uh, the votes split basically between the two major candidates for mayor, that being, of course, Fred Eisenberger and Vito Scrooge. Uh, newly released poll data now shows that the support for the mayor uh, during the uh, election was largely in urban areas and uh, obviously in central Hamilton. In uh, the rural areas, well, those seem to, to favor veto scroll. Joining us to, to analyze this and uh, give us a breakdown on this is Peter Gray, a political science professor sorry, from McMaster University. Peter, great to have you on the show.
1: Thanks so much for this. My pleasure. Were you
0: surprised by the breakdown?
1: uh not terribly uh i mean when you have uh, a mayor winning with uh, 53% of the vote and this is the highest percentage since amalgamation you'd expect him to be strong throughout the city and in the end uh he had more votes than the challenger in all uh all wards except uh, ward 9 and ward 15 so there's a Pretty strong show of support across the city in terms of having that majority support of people
0: voting for him. Good I guys, I think pre-election there was a lot of speculation that, well, you know, if you're not in favor of LRT, you're not going to vote for Fred Eisenberger. But uh, even in areas where you think the support for LRT might have been a little uh, less than enthusiastic, they still seem to move that way.
1: Yeah, I mean, and and I guess you can read that two ways. I mean, I mean, a case in point might be Ward Nine, where you had the the two main candidates and Doug Conley and Brad Clark. Running uh, hellfire against <laughs> the LRT. And, uh, you know, there it's true Vito Scro came out with uh, just over 50% of the vote, but uh, Fred Eisenberger was in the high 40s. So, how do you understand that? I mean, I guess there's two ways of seeing it. One is that maybe those candidates misjudged the degree of opposition to LRT in that ward. Uh, but maybe two, it's a kind of underlying support for the mayor, even in cases where people didn't like one of his signature issues. Uh, you know, again, even an award which he didn't win, at you know, in the high 40s, he, he got a higher percentage than people like, uh, you know, across the city, people like uh, Bob Bertina or uh, Bob Wade uh, received in their winning campaigns. So there's a pretty there's a strong strength of support, even in places where he finished second.
0: And, and I think that's surprising to some people, because anecdotally, the, a lot of the stuff we heard before the election was that, you know, the only support for LRT, uh, and, and I guess I'm through that for Fred Eisenberger, is going to be a great right where the, the, the route's going to go, towards 1, two, three, four, uh, right across the city, but probably not much else. We heard from the mountain counselors before the election that, oh boy, I'm hearing all kinds of people saying we don't want this thing out here. But the numbers uh, from the election, Peter, essentially say that the support's pretty strong, except until you get into those rural areas and the outlying areas.
1: Yeah, I mean, again, it's kind of, you know, how you pull the things apart. I mean, Vito Scrooge certainly said this was a uh, a referendum on the LRT, and so you could read it as a kind of sign of a a kind of silent and diffuse support. Uh, And certainly, you know, people may have been angry about the LRT, people who supported it in the sense of saying, hey, it's probably going to reduce my uh, property taxes, or it's an important way to allow the city to grow without congestion. Uh, Maybe we're less exercised about it, and so, you know, the candidates didn't hear it. The other possibility is that uh it's not necessarily that important an issue to a lot of people, so even if they were opposed to it uh ultimately they said, well, we don't want to give a blank check to uh someone who's never run a pop shop uh in municipal politics and let them become mayor you know what was the what was the basis of Vitos grows uh experience in municipal politics? Well, it was zero, and so uh you know maybe they felt that even if they agreed with them on the l r t they would prefer to keep the city in a pair of hands that uh, had some experience in running a city. So that would be the other way of thinking about it is that uh you know the, the the candidates made LRT the central issue, but voters had a more complex set of things they were thinking about when making their mayoral choice.
0: And that was an interesting uh I, I think result of this whole thing. Uh you know, we're right here. We're in the forest, you know, in, in political science and doing talk radio, whatever it is. And and so these issues are big issues to us. And we hear of course from people uh that seem passionate both pro for and against but uh, that's one of the takeaways I got on Monday night, too, Peter, is that maybe people just didn't think it was such a big deal after all.
1: Yeah, I think so. I mean, there's a way in which uh, the decision has been made repeatedly. I mean, the, the question has been re-litigated at City uh, city Council for a long time, and so people, regardless of how they feel, again, the the passionate people on both sides want to make sure that the project goes ahead or fails. Um, but for a lot of other people, I think the idea is, well, it's been litigated. Uh, maybe you're happy or not entirely happy with the decision that the city made, but There's a desire to move on to other things. And I mean, there were things that we saw in the council races that, you know, came up about sort of safety in communities and uh, are pedestrians safe uh, moving about in the city? Uh, Do we have in the new uh, developments, you know, say on Stony Creek Mountain, do we have the kind of uh, parks and infrastructure that allow families to raise kids? I mean, these were the kinds of questions that were also important to voters. Uh, And so, again, as much as the candidates made it about uh, an election on LRT, uh, there were probably other features of people's choice,
0: and and I found that to be the case on Monday night when I was uh, interviewing some of the the winners, especially some of the new counselors that just got elected. And I asked them specifically. I said, "What did you hear at the doors?" And and the consensus there, Peter, seemed to be, you know, what I didn't hear about LRT very much, unless unless the the uh, Well, in that case, the candidate actually brought it up. It says it was not front of mind for an awful lot of the people, especially up on the mountain.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, again, it, it's something that's been uh, kicking around now for about ten years in, in Hamilton politics. And uh, again, I mean, in a situation where you had uh, Fred Eisenberger running without a sort of serious competition from established political forces in the city, uh, you know, it made sense for the challenger, for Vito Scro, to make this uh, an election about cats versus dogs, and <laughs> was a way to get profile and get people talking. But. Uh, it's not, you know, people will, will always be happy to talk about cats versus dogs, but then they'll say, well, actually, that doesn't really matter to us. We don't have either, right? So uh, I, I think it's, it's maybe a bit of uh, that feature that we, that we saw. And uh, in some ways it's unfortunate because it meant that as a city we didn't get a chance to talk about some of these things that seem to be important to people in their local races.
0: And and those things are going to come up, obviously, in the matter, of course, over the next couple of months, of course, as Council starts to deal with, well, the, obviously, the 2019 budget and, and some other areas, uh, such as area rating, for instance, which I thought was going to be a much bigger issue, but it got virtually no conversation at all during this debate, uh, over the, you know, heading up to this election.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, I think area rating has two things that make it hard to be an election issue. Uh, I mean, on the one hand, it's a bit complicated to explain and hard then to deal on the doorstep with people who really don't understand uh, what it's about. Uh, but I think the other thing is that the councillors who were making the case that we had to keep area rating at the same time were also making claims that uh, that their part of the city was being shortchanged by a lack of transit. Uh, but ultimately, those are two sides of the same coin. I mean, there's less transit in part because area rating makes it impossible to expand transit without putting all the cost onto uh, the people in the area it's being added to. So, uh, you know the counselors themselves, who would be the most in favour of keeping area rating, uh, haven't had a consistent uh, and uh, probably an honest discussion about this when they're talking about the other side of it, which is transit service. And so I think they probably too had an interest of just keeping it at the level of a slogan. I mean, we saw Mr. Scrow at a few times bring out the question of area rating to try and drum up support in uh, the more rural parts of the of the riding, but. You know, even in the communities that were area-rated, again, outside of, you know, fifteen uh, Ward 15 and Ward 9, uh, he didn't get more votes than Mr. Eisenberger.
0: We anticipated, and just from what I heard over the phones over the last couple of months, uh, an angry constituency. Uh, you know, that, wow, they don't like the new ward boundaries. They're not going to, you know, like LRT uh, unless you live along the route. And and I, quite frankly, I guess we, we were basically told, no, that's that's not that big a deal. None of that stuff seemed to be good. Big. I guess it reiterates that, that, that old phrase, about you know, all politics is local. It was the local issues, what was going on in their neighborhood that seemed to matter to voters most.
1: Uh, Yeah, I mean, I think we also have to remember that, uh, you know, Hamiltonians who follow municipal politics do so with a passion, almost with vitriol if it's on Twitter. Uh, But it's a pretty small community. Uh, You know, the average Hamiltonian, if you speak to them about a decision, you know, an important decision even that was taken at City Hall, uh, you know, the week before, uh, they they don't really know what happened. They may have a kind of vague sense they saw something in the newspaper. And to the extent that our local... News coverage is really down to this radio station and the newspaper and the cbc uh you know web outfit. I think people are even less uh less informed about what's happening in their city's politics and so in that context, when you get to an election uh yeah you know, often there will be a lot of things that the people who were really following it closely are going to say this is crucial but uh, to the average voter, uh, it may actually be quite distant from their, their prime concerns.
0: Is that because we've got a lot of, of new people into this community? I mean, we've all heard from the real estate uh, end of things, of course, that uh, a lot of folks from the GTA are gravitating towards this area and buying homes here, condos, whatever the case might be. Uh, are they not engaged in local politics? Or are they still looking back to their, to their hometown and, and more concerned about what's going on there than they are here?
1: Yeah, I'm not sure if that's a case. I think you know we see from the turnouts in municipal elections, uh, you know, that's been kind of kicking around the sort of 35 to 40 percent range. It actually ticked up a bit in Hamilton this time, but you know, that sort of range, it gives you a sign that it's a pretty minority interest. You know, historically looking at at municipal politics, I think it is true as you have you know new developments as people move in. It maybe takes them a while to figure out. Well, what is it, and in what ways does the municipal government touch their lives? Uh, and there's also a way in the way we've talked about politics uh, in the city that the decisions at City Hall maybe aren't the most relevant ones. You, if you're in a new uh, subdivision, uh, you may be concerned about things like uh, you know safety of streets. You might be concerned about parks, but you know those are debates that you rarely see and being reported uh, out of City Hall. Uh, and, you know, I mean, obviously they're making those decisions and they're important decisions, but they aren't part of the debate uh, in the city most of the time. So. Uh yeah, I'm not sure if it's new people that makes uh make the difference. I think it's always been, you know, not that closely followed. Uh and it may be that the way that our politicians talk about issues at City Hall don't resonate with the, the kind of local issues that people have about the livability of their communities.
0: Peter, if you were a betting man, <laughs> uh would you would you speculate right now whether or not this is gonna put the LRT issue to bed once and for all or is this thing gonna drag on?
1: Uh well, I mean, I think it's going to be a real question for the councillors who are there. I mean, if they want to keep relitigating this every five years because they think it serves their own well, not every five years, every five months, every time there's an ex decision to be made because they they think it serves their sort purpose in their ward, yeah, I think we'll keep relitigating it. But I think we are in a moment where collectively they could say, well, we we had uh, something akin to a referendum on this. We seem to have still the same kind of split on Council which will lead to a narrow majority pushing it forward you know, let's actually try and make this a success of a project and make sure that we don't give the provincial government excuses to just pull the plug. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I think there is a moment where we could move forward, particularly if citizens kind of ask uh, their politicians and say, yeah, we know you're opposed to it, but we're we're over $100 million down the road in this, so don't come back to me at budget time and say you know that you're the you're really following the budget closely when you're you're willing to flush away 100 million dollars of work that's already been done.
0: Right, and it's also this propensity for councilors to always want some unanimous vote on these things. I, this this is an issue that's never going to be unanimous. There's always going to be some contrary points of view, aren't there?
1: Yeah, I mean and that's healthy, right? I mean, we don't sure. we don't have to if we always have to agree on everything, we end up with the the lowest common denominator solution. The you know, the, the least uh, you know, the least interesting uh I mean it is good to try and seek a broader consensus than a narrow majority we haven't been able to do that on Hamilton City Council but to the extent that we've been moving this forward for eight or nine years we've incurred uh, significant expenses you know this 100 million dollars isn't you know just on ads that were made it's like important engineering work acquiring property assembling the capacity to deliver this project uh it seems in fact a bit irresponsible for counselors to constantly be trying to relitigate the basic answer rather than when these things come up, actually debating the specifics of a particular contract or a particular set of decisions that have to be made. And again, that I think serves us poorly, because the, the, main, the main decision has been made. Uh, it's a matter of, of looking at the more specific uh, aspects and making sure those are right, and that gets lost if we're just always talking about the big question.
0: I think we're at the point, too, are we not, Peter, where like, everybody's made up their mind on this. And like in, there's, there's nothing else that's going to be brought into this discussion that's going to change anybody's mind. You're either for it or, it, based on what we know.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's true. I mean, I think we should leave open the opportunity that the, you know, the the province or, you know, some deal could be fundamentally bad for the city, and we have to keep our eyes open for that. Uh, but again, we should have a sort of grain of salt when councillors try to relitigate it, because it gives them a chance to grandstand. I mean, I think, you know, there's a, a moment where we have uh, four new councillors on this uh, council, a couple from the Central Mountain who seem to be talking about the interests of the residents uh, in a, in a different way than we saw with... Either councillor duval or councillor Skelly or even councillor Whitehead, when he represented the Mohawk area, uh, so there's also, I think, a moment to be thinking differently about a whole lot of different questions. You know, whether it's pedestrian safety. Uh, you know, Esther Pauls was really pushing the idea of separated bike lanes and uh, you know improving the bike network on the mountain. Uh, there's a lot of different discussions we could also start being having uh, in the city in terms of solving some really concrete issues that. Uh, residents have identified through this election
0: season. Well, that's one of the things I was excited about is, is the, the agenda that they're going to bring to the table. I mean, it's always, I think, a good idea to get new blood on a council, but but the influx and I think the quality of some of the newcomers here is, is uh, I, I think, giving an awful lot of people now some hope that maybe we can turn the page on this and move on to other issues.
1: Well, I think at the very least it, it shakes up the common blocks on council. And a certain number of councillors who were happy to be opposed to things because they thought they were easy vote-getters now have to face people next door saying, no, actually, our citizens want them. Uh, And so I think it will complicate some of the posturing that we've seen on council and maybe lead to more productive discussions about how to make this the best city to live in.
0: Wouldn't that be nice? (laughs) Peter, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for this today. You're welcome. Peter Grafe, uh, political science professor from McMaster University. Uh, With the breakdown and uh, Fred Eisenberger winning... Uh, very, very comfortably, of course, uh, with the, the, the municipal election going on there. And uh, let's say I'd like to see them turn the page. One of the, the things that really is frustrating, we talked about this with Marianne Mead Ward, the, uh, the mayor-elect of uh, Burlington now, is that you know the election's over. Uh, the new councils don't get sworn in until the first week of December. So you got this like five- or six-week period where not much of anything is going to be going on, and uh, there are things that could be done and things that could be side, decided upon. It's one thing, I think, that the province is going to have to do. It's one thing to move the election date up, like, and I'm glad they did, to early October as opposed to November, where it had been for the last number of years. But get the new council sworn in. ASAP, and get them starting to work on this instead of the, this this lame period that they've got right now.
2: You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML.
0: Right now, though, it's the Chief's Town Hall, and uh, Hamilton Chief of Police Eric Gert is with us here in studio. Good to see you again. Thanks for coming in today. Thank
2: you, Bill, and I guess you're a little tired from the election. It's, uh, been, a bu- it's been a long <laughs> week. It's
0: been a busy week, yeah. It's been a long week. Uh, let's let's But a, a fun week. I figure there's a lot of stuff going on here. And, and by the way, since you brought it up... Uh, People, get the election signs out of here, please, all right? <coughs> no, you still see them on there. That's, yeah, that's right. They're supposed to come down. Yeah, within 24 hours after the election. Some pe- folks have still not done that. Uh, you may want to hang on to them as souvenirs, but at least get them off the lawns and the and the, the rights of ways, too. But anyway, me, oh, something else that came up this week, of course. I don't know if you heard, Sheep, but uh,
2: cannabis has been
0: legalized. Yeah, it's something
2: uh, on October 17th. So yeah. I guess it was in the works for a couple days or something. Yeah. Yeah,
0: well, you know, <laughs> great anticipation for this. Uh, how, how has the rollout gone on, if you excuse the bad
2: pun here? Um. It's not terribly smooth, but at the same time, we're as prepared as we can be. We, we you know, we researched the legislation. We got the, uh, the pieces in place as far as that's concerned, in terms of our education of our frontline, quite frankly, for the public, I would say it's, it's a complicated process. I'm just looking at a sheet. I have, for example, cannabis and cannabis concentrates, and there's seven different kinds. So when you start talking about this product, everybody thinks of a dried cannabis, you know, in a little baggie. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's just one aspect. And then you get into equivalencies and how much fresh product you can have, how much, uh, if you've got, a, say, in a hash brownie, how much can you have in that? Let's say you've got hashish, either solid or oil. That's different again. So what I would recommend to the public is before you start carrying it around and thinking everything's okay, make sure you research what you can actually carry because it's not that simple. It's not just a 30-gram bag of marijuana. And then, as you know, if you're in possession between 30 and 50 grams, exclude any medical possession. Now you're into the federal ticketing scheme, which has not been put in place, and that's where I'll go. Some of the administrative processes have not been put in place yet. We're very cognizant of this because what we don't want to do is is arrest, process, and then find out the administrative processes are not in place. So I think there's still a lot of work of the government to do on that piece. Where that really impacts is on the drug dispensaries because, yes, the legislation is in place, but no, not all the administrative processes. Having said that, it was illegal for drug dispensaries. It is illegal. And until the 19th when they decide next year, April 2019, um, and, you know, whether it's approved here locally that they're going to have cannabis retail stores has not been decided. And the municipality has to make that decision. Currently, your only legal source is through the government store online. And we know there's, you know, three to four week backlog as I understand it. So even for people in possession currently, unless it's come through a government store, it's still illegal. It was illicit. And, you know, beyond just the legality of it, if you have obtained product not from the government store, you still run the risk of other drugs introduced into it uh, spores, mold, all the other hazards that came from illicit production in the first place, they still remain. So I just say, be cautious about this, but definitely if you're going to consume, make sure you research it properly. There are still criminal sanctions if you're above the legal limits.
0: And how do you determine those legal limits? Because, uh, uh, again, the stuff I've tried to read up on uh, about this basically says, that, uh, you said it depends on what
2: you've ingested. Yeah, and that's more the if you're driving impaired, that's a whole different topic. I'm just talking about the actual possession or trafficking. Now, they've changed it to selling and production. Uh, the term trafficking has now come out. The other thing is it used to be embraced in the Controlled, Substant- Controlled Drugs and Substances Act, Cannabis has been taken out completely from that and is now governed actually by not one act, but two. There's a federal cannabis act and there's a provincial cannabis act. And then you've got all the related acts like the uh, Safe Smoking Ontario. I I mean, I even got the verbiage on that proper, but um, you've got that as well. It's actually the Smoke-Free Ontario Act that also governs certain things. So it's complex. Where can you use this stuff?
0: I, I, mean, I mean, you know, people are saying, well, it's the same as tobacco. You just have to go to a smoking section. Or, no, I could just walk down the street. And, and, and I don't know. I, I said, I don't think you can.
2: No, and this is the point. Let's just look at uh, a possession inside a vehicle. And I think what the government has done is tried to mirror the liquor legislation in large part. So you cannot smoke in your car. You can't have it available freely to the driver. So it has to be in a sealed container out of reach of those people. So you go, well, how do I know that? Well, you have to turn to the Provincial Act for that, that governs how it's uh, regulated. And in some cases, you have to look to the municipal um, laws in terms of what they have decided. So it's a three-tier system. Federal's doing part. Uh, provinces doing a part and then the municipalities are doing part. That's why I say it's complex. It's worth investing the time to research this. You don't end up breaching something. You say, geez, I didn't know that. Um, which so is,
0: which is no defense as we've talked about for many
2: years now. Agreed. But it's, it's small consolation when you're saying, well, I had no intent to do this. And then you got to go through the court process and establish all that. Uh, but again, very clearly, uh, distributing or giving to youth, absolutely prohibited. Um, Those are just criminal sanctions, right, to begin with. And that was the focus on the feds right from the start. Now, I'm not in agreement with the 19, uh, you know, years and uh, younger. I would like to see it higher, but it's not my decision. So we enforce the laws. We don't start providing commentary on that piece. But nonetheless, we know there are impacts medically for kids who ingest. My big concern right now, because they have not regulated the edibles being fundamentally teach so you can be introduced to anything you can eat or drink mm-hmm. so you could have in pop coffee as a liquid in any food and particularly candies and things like that are appealing to youth you know let's say I go down to my shop I put I purchase, uh, you know, legal quantity, a legal, not illegal, a legal quantity. I bring it into my home <coughs> and then, you know, I don't know that when you're, you're, you know, either ingesting or smoking that you're particularly diligent about your safety requirements. So you leave it out on, you know, your table and either, you know, a child gets into it or your pet gets into it. We're now seeing some commentary on that in the media. Uh, there are consequences seriously for the youth and for, um, for animals. One of the things I didn't recognize, and I just did a whole online course, is the rate of ingestion in youth of THC and what they metabolize is actually higher than it is for adults. So if they consume, there's actually larger impact. So, you know, these are things we didn't know. uh, But again, we want to keep it out of the hands of youth. uh, Recreational users, now it's become law. This is a product, just like any other consumable, uh, to say, well, geez, this is a new drug. How many drugs do we have in our current society? When you think about prescription medication, opioids, illegal drugs, like there's tons of drugs around. This is just what they've done is make it not illegal for possession under 30 grams for medical users. You can have up to 150 grams that is medically prescribed plus the 30 grams recreational. So just picture that 30 grams is about the equivalent of 60 cigarettes. So 180 grams. That's that's about 300 and some odd cigarettes. That's a lot of cigarettes. And you're carrying that around a baggie. Theoretically, that's mm-hmm. legal. But, of course, we will do our due diligence and check on that. You may not get arrested, but we're going to make inquiries because if you are not in legal possession of it, then we will take the appropriate action. A uh, quick
0: email from Phil who's listening to our conversation. Uh, says, to my understanding, you can smoke a joint in the park, yet you can't consume a can of beer in the park. Uh, they're both mind-altering drugs. Why can you do one and not the other? I don't, I don't think you can smoke in the park, can you?
2: Well, it depends. You're not supposed to smoke tobacco in the park. It's City of Hamilton bylaw. Well, you got it right here: uh, Smoke Free Ontario Act. Enclosed public place is prohibited. Enclosed workplace schools, indoor common areas, child care center, or any place that smoking is not allowed. So what you're seeing now, and in some buildings, the landlord is saying, you know what, I'm going to make this a prohibited space legally, uh, not just for marijuana, but for tobacco or any smoking, and now inside the residence as you get into a whole other dynamic. So you've got to look to the legislation that applies to that. So to, in answer to his question, Look at the Smoke Free Ontario Act if it's not prohibited, and then you also got to look to the Cannabis Act to see if it's prohibited or the municipality has prohibited it. So it, it's not straightforward. And, and to Phil's point, uh, I, I, as I say, there is a bylaw here
0: in Hamilton that you're not allowed to smoke smoke in public parks. Correct. Uh, that came into place a couple of years ago, and that, so that again, now that's a bylaw offense. That's not necessarily something that's uh, involved in the criminal code, of course, but right. it is it is one of the bylaws in
2: this community. But again, to your point, um, Bill, is if you'd have to look to see if it specifically. De- de- designates no smoking of tobacco versus no smoking because you're getting into other products that may or may not be prohibited. So you got to make sure, you know, if you're going to just do the research and make sure you can or you can't. And then, you know, one of our leading complaints obviously in my view is going to be the neighbor next door is smoking up and the stuff's drifting over and I really don't appreciate it. And no, it's not prohibited, uh, but then you get into a discussion, hopefully, in a neighborly way. And I do know of a case where the person said, "You know, look, uh, would you mind?" and and then the person said, "Oh, geez, you know, I didn't know. I'll, I'll shut the windows and I'll do this, that, the other thing." Do they have to? No. Is it good neighbor relations?
0: Definitely. Interesting point on that. And and you mentioned about uh, you know prohibition of smoking in in for instance in apartment buildings, and that's something that's being discussed right now and debated because uh, and it's a perfect example of what you mentioned a minute ago they haven't done a, all the you know dotted all the I's and crossed all the T's on this stuff exactly uh, that's a loophole there right now I, and I found out we had a legal opinion on this earlier in the show yep. uh, that that's basically said if you don't like the smell, that's too bad. Uh, yep. you have to prove that it's harming you that that, that is physically harming you whether it because you know a respiratory disease or whatever it might be so this is this is going to be tricky and there's going to be a lot of back and forth on this for quite some time.
2: And you raise a good point. Like any new law that comes into place, then you're going to have legal decisions that stem out of either complaints or criminal um, enforcement. And then you're going to have case law that amends it. And I mean, just look at the medical marijuana. You had a Supreme court decision that reversed it and said, oh, no, no, you can actually now possess it. Then you had modifying decisions after that, even though a new act was introduced. And if you want to t- talk about complexity, just go look at the medical marijuana restrictions. Like it's, it's, you gotta have about a two page overview just to understand the mechanics. Now, on top of that, we got the medical already. And then you've got this act, and to your point, that's why I talked about the administrative gaps. Um, can you contemplate everything possibly when you're introducing legislation? No, but there's, there's lots of big pieces uh, where we still need to see that. So for us, on the drug dispensaries, and, and we continue with our enforcement action, and my message on that, it was illegal. It remains illegal up until such time as the government decides if you can open a dispensary. Now, we know that the uh, profits they can generate are substantial. So we uh, wanted to make sure that the provincial fines that are in place, and it's $100,000 for an individual, it's up to a $1 million for a corporation, that those are in fact in place, that we do the due process under the Provincial Offenses Act. So when we lay those charges when we uh, actually go and enforce in those dispensaries that it will stick, and I would like to think that a million dollar fine is going to sting. Um, and then if we look at subsequent fines, as you know, actually, the higher fine is five million dollars under the federal act, and that has to do with marketing to youth, making it attractive, those type of words. Uh, it's really uh, along kind of a consumer um, basis as opposed to you know police enforcement basis. What's the learning curve like for your officers to pick up on this
0: stuff? I mean, this is this is a whole different. I was going to say chapter; it's a whole new book, really. Yeah, it's and, and, and they've got to yeah. have
2: a, a working knowledge of this stuff. Well, now, as of now, yeah. so I've done the training and. <laughs> what I felt like I was on a, uh, a drug enforcement course with illicit, uh, you know, clandestine labs, um, growing operations. One of the things the public may not know is that, um, some of the products that are created, for example, uh, shatter and uh, bubble hash and keef. I didn't even know what keef was till I started doing this, um, they are often produced using either butane, isopropyl alcohol as drying agents um, to distill and get the higher, uh, I believe it's called trichromes, which is the chemical active substance on the leaves. And there's different ways to do it. Uh, but obviously, uh, there's a public safety component because if you have you know cans and cans of butane that you're doing on this, And your, let's say, for example, your furnace kicks on and uh, whoosh, and now the place blows up. We know that from uh, previous clandestine labs. Well, you cannot start using those products and they are prohibited in law. There are other ways to do it with ice and other things, but um, and I'm sure everybody will find that out very quickly. Uh, but there's still a huge public safety component, and let's just talk about grows. But and we know this from from uh, the drug grows. There's there's mold, there's uh, high humidity, and this is all because you're dealing with plants. And then there's toxicity uh, either from the product itself or the mold in the air. So you know our people have to be cognizant of that and wear personal protective equipment up until including self-continuing breathing apparatus in certain cases so that our members aren't at risk. So, you know, if you're doing in your home shop and you haven't looked after your safety regulations, you got to blow your house up, and I'm not trying to be alarmist, but, you know, if you haven't done your due diligence, these are some of the byproducts. This is, you know, you got to be serious about looking at what is happening in this.
0: Well, and we've seen that happen with some of the grow operations around here. Yeah. All of a sudden the house blows up, and obviously
2: upon investigation you find out that they were doing something like that all along. Correct. And tends to have a negative impact with your neighbors because they they don't like it when the house next door blows up and there's a whole public safety risk. And again, I'm not trying to be trite here, but we've seen that and people go, geez, I didn't know that was going on. And this will be some of the friction that's going to exist, no pun intended, between the implementation of this act and then what people will do relative to either harvesting, growing, and as you know, you can possess up to four plants in your own house. Well, now we've got people growing uh, on their properties up to four plants. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on
1: 900 CHML.
0: Hamilton Chief of Police Eric Gert is here for the Chief's Town Hall. And, uh, yeah, we're going to go to your calls in just a couple of seconds here. 905 645 nine 9900 Emails and tweets coming up in just a couple of minutes as well. Your questions uh, about public safety and policing here in the community. And uh, we'll start it off with uh, Frank. Frank, thanks for holding on. How are you doing this morning?
3: I'm quite well, thank you, uh, Bill. And uh, good morning, Chief.
0: morning, Frank.
1: Uh, I, uh... I have to ask you, um, you know, you, you describe all the little intricacies of what's going to happen here with the uh, legalization of marijuana, as it it, how it's being used, where it's going to be used, what the rules are, what the rules aren't. You know, I, I want you to give me, if you could, uh, expound on the gut feeling of the ramifications at hand here that you see it. And you know, you're, you're police force now. I'm just going to lean on carding, for example, where you, you, know, you can't approach people uh, just at random if I'm right there. And, you know, if you see someone, for example, that's not walking straight and they were smoking and they get in their car, I mean, I want you, if you could, expound on Chief Gert's gut feeling on <laughs> what you're going to face in this whole ordeal in, uh, as you start to pound your policeman onto the road again with another, another of the many ways to try to keep civility here. You, I'll, I'll let you go there.
2: Thank you. Thanks very much, Frank. Go ahead. Thanks, Frank. And a good question. I, I really, it boils down to let's look at impaired driving. Impaired driving is impaired driving. And you're seeing some of the campaigns now s- stating exactly that. And I've been talking about this. You know, I was a breath tech for many years. Uh, you know, two years back when they were contemplating this. So, you know, whether it's THC or whether it's uh, opioids or prescription medication or sleep deprivation or alcohol or a combination of all those. It's the physical indicia of impairment. So, just for example, we had a report this morning in our morning briefing uh, of somebody arrested on the Red Hill Valley Parkway with citizens that observed erratic driving. Uh, we then stop. We, uh, through our frontline officers, uh, you know, gather the evidence for physical condition impairment, slurred speech, slow responses, dropping documents. Persons arrested now in this case wasn't THC at all and in fact there were other drugs that were seized at the scene Uh, so my point there is you know it's all the focus has been on THC and marijuana and cannabis but really it's always been impaired driving and the hazards that present so that's step one around the impaired driving relative to and we got in discussions in terms of fitness for duty and you saw some of the discussions in other jurisdictions and again um, I didn't go down the you know 28 days or four to six months that you've smoked up if you're a frequent user and you know for some of the people they don't realize that alcohol for example is is absorbed by water sensitive tissues one of the big ones being your brain that's why the effects but also for studying the effects of that uh, the body eliminates it through regular processes you know in a fairly you know speedy manner, I'll call it, you know, within a day or two, Um, for THC, it's not the same. And you have accumulation of THC in fat cells, not water-based tissues. And the chemistry of it is very different. So, you know, even though you've had it, um, many, many days before, uh, you say it's out of my system, it may not be. So for us, from a workplace standpoint, and you can only imagine, you know, we have officers who may use a force and are making life and death decisions, um, literally. Uh, we want them to be fit for duty. So if they are impaired by anything, and that can include, for example, medical prescriptions that they've obtained, let's say they have chronic pain. So fitness for duty there, same physical and of impairment. Relative to the tidal wave of use, I don't know. My concern as a a police chief is, uh, you know, I don't believe the market is actually here in Canada. I believe the market is in a much larger market. Think of the South. And what you have when you've got the legal distribution of uh, cannabis, so you have somebody growing it, somebody transporting it somebody selling it. Well, if I have that distribution set up and I have neighbors to the south with a porous border, I know that it was previously pronounced uh, in one of the, one of the um, uh, uh, print media as porous, it's not porous, it's porous like a porous uh, sieve, P-O-R-O-U-S, down to the states, that's a huge market down there. Now, some of it's legal in some states and not in others. There's a lot of money to be made. This is you know, largely about money. And when you talk about money, you're probably going to be talking about organized crime because organized crime is interested in generating cash. Just look at, you know, the cocaine cartels and the billions of dollars uh, that those people were profiting from. So this is the larger dynamic. Our concern is not with that recreational user. If they're doing it in a safe fashion, our concern is criminality, improper distribution and selling and also impaired driving. Those are really the big public safety issues. Uh, which
0: also leads, obviously, to the, a thing that we've been very concerned about the last little while, and that's gun violence in the city. And uh, let's let's talk about the relationship between that and any illegal drug activity.
2: Yeah, and you're right. You're and right. If
0: you're carrying a big amount of money around there, obviously you think you have to protect yourself. Uh, and, and that's right. where we get these stories where they say, well, that, this individual was known to police, or you know, the public is not at, at, at in any danger. It's because, in other words, this is internal squabbling.
2: Well, there is, but it's guns, money, drugs. And, you know, my commentary on the shooting is even if it is targeted, it's not that it's safe because you have stray rounds. And I've said before, some of these criminals, unless they're really good at the video games, are not particularly good at placing their rounds. Um, And under stress, we know from our own training how difficult that is to hit a target. Uh, So when you get that whole discussion, well, you know, wing him in the hand and shoot the gun out of his hand. Um, Under pressure situations, our rate of accuracy is actually not that high. Um, To hit center of mass is important, but Back to your original question, guns, money, drugs. And we're talking hundreds of thousands of dollars. So you just think, well, you know, uh, I'm carrying my product. I've got this wad of cash. Gee, could somebody take that off me? Well, certainly they could. They can take both. Plus, if they're outgunning you, they can take your firearm as well. And they don't have to abide by the rules that we do. So these are concerns. So it, it is a profitable industry still. And will remain so, even though it's been legalized. I know there'll be a slight dent, uh, but it's also all the other drugs and we've you know what 's not getting discussed lately is the opioid crisis which remains, and the illegal distribution of opioids so it's not quite as simple, and i 'm not saying it's a gateway or any of that stuff. I couldn't establish that, but where there's drugs there's money, guns that 's what happens.
0: 905-645-3221 for your questions, your comments for Chief of Police, Eric Gert. Uh, back to the calls. Andrew, thanks for holding on. How are you doing this morning, Andrew?
3: Is Andrew there? Oh, there's a button there. Good morning. How are you, Andrew? Not bad. How are you doing, Bill?
0: Fabulous. Thank you.
3: Long You're- time no speak. Uh, three quick questions because I'm on a cell phone and I'm pretty sure it's going to die in the next five minutes or so. <laughs> um, to the police chief, good morning. Good morning. Um, What do you define as the difference between recreational consumption and medicinal consumption? Also, um, when it comes to the impairment potential of cannabis, how do you determine how long a person has to go between consumption and their being declared safe to operate heavy equipment or a car? For example, and the reason why I'm asking this, as you've already noted, THC is stored in fat cells. Correct. But it has a half-life Correct. Meaning that although it is detectable up to eight to ten months later in my bloodstream, that does not necessarily mean that I am stoned when I am being interviewed by a police officer at the side of the road. Now, I myself am a medical patient as well as a recreational user, and I have been studying cannabis science from outside the experiment for about 25 years now. Yep. And I would love to know where you got your information and what that information leads you to believe. And I will bid you a very good day, and I will listen to the radio and hear your answer.
2: Thanks very much, Andrew. Appreciate the call. Thanks, Andrew, and a good question. And I'll preface my remarks with one. I am not a medical practitioner nor a research In uh, a researcher in the area of cannabis Uh, however we have to look at the applicability and that's why I don't get into delineations between you know this many days after Uh, quite frankly there's so much individual variation by a person and I always go to for my example and it's again I'm not a medical practitioner but you know I do know people who have chronic pain who are on very high uh, doses of both in some cases fentanyl and oxycodone I mean until I met this person I thought you either get one or the other but not both they're taking both their tolerance versus where I to start tomorrow you know I'd be on the floor passed out <clears throat> they've acquired a tolerance for it. I think that's the differences in terms of the chemistry and methodology so I'm not going to get into discussion of that because my concern is when you get in the car and to answer your question about impairment if you're impaired you're impaired And if you cannot operate and you're driving a vehicle that weighs a ton or more, it it can be a weapon, and if you're not in control of it and can't react to the things that you need to react to, it's hard enough on a day-to-day basis, much less ingesting drugs and all the rest. If, for example, uh, you were a person, let's say on opioids, we'll take THC out of the equation, and your doctor says, you know what, you can't operate heavy equipment or machinery, well, then I guess you kind of got a driver's license suspension in a sense because that medical practitioner is stating, um, with the dose I'm giving you, you probably shouldn't be doing that because it's a risk. So it's an indirect way to answer your question. You have to do a, a, an independent assessment to say, and probably not you, probably maybe somebody else who's looking at you, um, you know, you're slow to reaction, your speech is slurred. You don't appear to be responding to questions in a timely fashion. Now you're going to get in a car and drive. So whether you've had THC or alcohol, or even sleep deprivation just on its own um, there are times when you should not be behind the wheel so there is no fixed answer for you know I smoked a you know a 3% uh, uh, joint uh, with this many grams at this uh, rate and that will affect me in this manner I don't think the science is there to indicate uh, a specific effect on a specific individual I'll quickly go to just alcohol um, alcohol uh, affects women and men differently. And I know that from the uh, physical sciences I researched while I was becoming a breathalyzer technician. Does that mean I can testify in court in terms of the bio, uh, bio- biology of it? Uh, no, but I'm aware of it. And also people who are overweight versus people who are lean and the effects there. Because if you're overweight for alcohol, we talked about it, it's not getting absorbed into the fat cells. It's getting involved in the water-sensitive tissue. So actually, if you're more muscular, the alcohol dissipates further into the system versus someone who's overweight and has a higher fat content. Now you're going to get into the THC, which is a whole different chemistry. So one, I'm not going to give you a quick answer to that other than if you're impaired, don't drive. If you can not assess, ask somebody else to assess you. Um, you know, fundamentally, and I know this from, for example, ingesting alcohol when we were on that breathalyzer course and I had five beers in an hour, which I would never drink. And I thought, Oh my God, I would never get behind the wheel. Quite frankly, I was under the legal limit and I thought, oh my God, like if I'm driving at, let's say 200 milligrams, which would be like, you know, five times what I had in my system, it'd be crazy to get behind. I thought it was crazy to get behind the wheel when I was under the limit. So you got to have that personal responsibility around, will I be safe? Will others be safe?
0: Thanks so much for the call. Uh, As you might expect, Chief, uh, uh, lots of questions uh, about uh, the cannabis legislation and the impacts it's going to have. Let me uh, bring Butch into the conversation. Hi, Butch. How are you doing this morning?
1: Hey, good day, Bill. I'm fine. I've got a a logistics question here, and it may have been asked before prior uh, shows or something, but how come all these dispensaries are still in business? If I was a bootlegger selling booze, homemade hooch or whatever, uh, I would be busted in a in a flash. How come all these dispensaries are just popping up and they need business licenses? How how come
4: how come that is happening?
2: Yeah, and I can tell effect. you as recently as yesterday we did enforcement on uh, a dispensary. <coughs> we will continue to do it. Uh, the number of dispensary, dispensaries in Hamilton actually decreased by half when the legislation was passed, which we applaud, and uh, we will be continuing the enforcement. We've done over 50 dispensary since January of this year in terms of seizing a product and charging. We'll continue to do that. What I'm hopeful for is that with the new fines that are in place, and I talked about them earlier, the $100,000 fine for an individual, the up to a million dollar fine for a corporation is that those in fact will will be put into place and they'll be heard before justice of pieces uh, in provincial offenses court. And there are some other federal um, uh, acts as well that apply so that may be for uh, you know a, a, a judge there but I want to from a chief standpoint want to see those penalties come into place that make it unprofitable to stay in business so um, you know can't turn them out on a dime we had a large proliferation in our particular uh, municipality and we'll continue to enforce we actually in fact worked with bylaw yesterday on one of the dispensaries and we'll continue to do that enforcement Okay. Oh,
1: this, is, this is encouraging <laughs> okay
0: Thanks for the call, Butch. Appreciate it. 905 645 3221 star The Bill Kelly Show, 900 CHML, with uh, Chief of Police Eric Gert. Amanda's next on the program. Hi, Amanda.
4: Hi, how are
0: you? I'm well. Go ahead for the chief.
4: I have a question, but I just wanted to make a quick comment based on uh, what a caller had just recently said um, about how long afterwards that you can operate a vehicle. Um, I currently have a, a medicinal prescription um, through Health Canada, and they do tell... Their patients that you have five hours after inhaling or smoking traditionally uh, cannabis uh, with THC. So I'm not sure if that's different based on each each, uh, each person and their individual prescription. Um, but they do give people who have a legitimate prescription requirements for themselves.
2: Um, yeah, and again the uh, again the active ingredient. Again, I'm not a physician or a chemist, but the active ingredient in medical is often not the same and and there's variations in percentage of thc content i mean you know when i was a teenager they're probably in the one to three percent category uh they can produce up to thirty percent and higher on some of the concentrates so this is the variability and you raise a very good question Uh, but i go back to my original comment which was um you know you kind of know when you can't do what is required behind that wheel uh when all the dust is settled for example, and you say, well, I have a medical prescription. I was trying to do my best, and, and I'm not trying to be alarmist, but I've been to these scenes. Now you have somebody dead under your car for whatever reason. You know, it could be even that you're not impaired at all. Um,
4: yeah, oh, I completely, I completely agree with you. I, 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 but that's not my question. I'm sorry. I, my, um, my question I want to ask you, you actually just commented on it. So I heard on a different radio station uh, last week there was someone from Hamilton Police Services, I'm not sure who, um, but they were talking, uh, saying that um, medicinal cannabis is not intoxicating. Um, but I wanted to clarify yeah. that while THC is the main uh, the main psychoactive ingredient in cannabis, it also is the exact ingredient that is required for pain management. So any medicinal prescription um, that is prescribed for management of pain, which is most oftenly prescribed for cancer patients who are undergoing chemotherapy. Yep, that's right. Um, so they have... Have a high THC content in their prescription in order right. for it to um, to moderate pain. Now, something yeah, with a with a high CBD, which is the other, correct. that's often prescribed for anxiety. Right. That, that's not approved by Health Canada. as Um. Uh,
2: uh, Oh, you're, you're cutting out there, but maybe I'll take the opportunity. Yeah. And I wasn't going to get into Delta-9-THC versus uh, cannabinoids, um, and I may not even pronounce that correctly, but there's two active ingredients. And to your point, one has psychoactive effects, the other does not. But, you know, your question was, if the medical practitioner issues and gives you a five-hour window – in my my comment was it depends on what you're getting, which is exactly what you're saying. It could be the CBD ingredient, it could be the THC, uh, you know, delta nine. And again, I'm not a chemist, but I do know those are the active ingredients. So it depends what you're getting. I think probably your question is best um, to your doctor, who actually has the knowledge of uh, those type of things. M- from my point of view, from a you know uh, an enforcement perspective, if you're impaired, you're impaired. So you know, if you know you're impaired, don't drive.
0: Uh, we got about a minute left here, and uh, I want to give you a second here to talk about this uh, program, "Coffee with a Cop." What's this all about? <laughs>
2: uh, it's really just and where's mine? Yeah. <laughs> Well, we're happy to give you one and you can come on down and have a chat, Bill, uh, at our uh, locations Have me come in here. Uh, no, it's really just an outreach to our, our crime prevention area and, and other places where, you know, in a non, I'll call it a non-threatening environment. I don't feel threatening, but um, some people with the, you know, the symbol of office and uniform and all that may be intimidated and generally call us when there's a problem, not when you don't have a problem. And, and we appreciate that. And, uh, but when you don't have a problem, you just want to find out. So, for example, let's say all about cannabis, but you don't, you know, You just want to ask, much like our callers have done today, this is an opportunity to meet with a police officer and just put the questions to them without feeling kind of intimidated and you know in large part and we just did our video uh, you know uh, I do what it takes Uh, you can see that line on YouTube it it really is just about humanizing the officers that work here and again when I was on this show one of the callers I thought she summarized it brilliantly brilliantly she said you know the the video was awesome Uh, these could be our brothers sisters parents Uh, it just really humanized the officers That was really the intent of the video because, yes, we do this official position. Yes, we have to enforce the laws, but we're also people, too. So this is an extension of that.
0: Good stuff. And uh, if they want to get any details, just call uh, Central Station. Yeah, they can do that. Uh, We're just about out of time. Uh, uh, Regrets to those that we couldn't get on the phone, but uh, we'll do this again in just a couple of weeks and have the chief back in here. Thanks again. Hamilton Chief of Police, Eric Gurd.
2: The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900-CHML.